0: Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit perkinscoie.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice.
1: Welcome to the White Collar Briefly podcast series, False Claims Act Enforcement Risks and Healthcare Compliance. This is part two in our series. Our guest today is Pete Jensen, the Global Chief Compliance Officer for Arthrex. And I'm joined by my co-host, Alex Cannizzaris. Pete, welcome. Just to introduce you to our audience, Pete is the Global Chief Compliance Officer for Arthrex, and before he moved to compliance, Pete spent two years working as the Chief International Counsel in Arthrex's legal department, which included a 12-month assignment to Singapore. And prior to joining Arthrex, Pete practiced white-collar defense at Sidley Austin in Washington, D.C., and worked as the Chief Nominations Counsel for the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. Pete clerked for the Honorable Thomas B. Griffith of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and is a graduate of BYU and the University of Utah College of Law. Pete, welcome. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Barack. Absolutely. Uh, And one thing I should add, by the way, for those who don't know, Arthrex is currently the number two in size privately held medical device company globally. So in addition to the fact that these jobs are just impressive in and of themselves, we're talking about a major, major medical device company. So Pete has considerable deep experience in compliance issues. So today, as I mentioned during, during the intro to the podcast series, we're going to be talking about False Claims Act enforcement risks and emerging compliance issues in the healthcare industry. But before we get to that, Pete, why don't you tell us about your, your background? What led you to in-house work in the healthcare industry?
0: Yeah. So as you noted at the beginning, Barack, I was doing white-collar defense at Sidley in D.C. At the time, there was a lot of FCPA work. That uh, that I got sucked into, along with a lot of other folks, it seemed like everybody in DC in the late 2000s were uh, was working on FCPA. Arthrex was was actually one of our clients. Sidley had been advising Arthrex on 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 U.S. healthcare compliance for about 20 years. There was a long relationship, and at the time they were looking to expand some of their, uh, I guess, do a, an assessment of their FCPA risk, and so I got pulled into that team and did a global assessment. And at that time, that's I was I was burnt out on the DC thing and, and looking to uh, to make a change. And and it just worked out where, where Arthrex was interested in, in expanding their uh, capabilities and, and bringing me in-house. And so I spent a lot of time, we had a couple enforcement actions outside of the US. And so that's why I was initially part of the legal department, taking care of those and then moved over to compliance about five and a half
1: years ago. And what was the move to Singapore about?
0: Yeah, so that was we were setting up our our APAC headquarters in Singapore. We'd had uh, I guess three regional or three country offices in, in Korea, China, and Japan, and were was managing those um, outside of uh, or out of headquarters in Naples, Florida. So we really wanted to set up a regional office. That was part of that team to to kind of help get it stood up. So we built a, a lab in Singapore. We do a lot of medical education training and there's a variety of legal issues associated with that. And then just kind of help to oversee bringing those, all of our APAC operations into the, the regional headquarters. So I was going back and forth. I have a gaggle of kids. Um, and, uh, and so that was, that was a challenge, but, uh, but it was fun. I got to bring my family out that summer. And so it was a good opportunity for them to see Southeast Asia
1: and, and experience that. So when you were initially working at Arthrex, were you still focusing on anti-bribery issues or were you immediately into healthcare? No, it, it was
0: it was mostly anti-bribery. I was helping support the compliance team because we did have a lot of you know, typical U.S. fraud abuse stuff. But but my main focus, and that was kind of my my experience, was in, in FCPA. We had a variety of other issues too, but it, it was mostly uh, FCPA stuff. And then once I moved over to compliance, I would say it Sort of flipped, and and now the vast majority of my, my time is spent on on U.S. fraud abuse stuff. Uh, uh, FCPA is a close second, but but it's primarily AKS and FCA.
1: What's that turn, the transition like moving from FCPA to uh, to a highly regulated, compliant, much more? I was going to say narrow. It's not really more. You know what I mean? It's not more narrow, but it's highly, highly regulated, and it's very particular, very, very different from FCPA enforcement. That's exactly right. And I remember <laughs> when I was working on FCPA cases
0: at, at Sidley, one of the partners who I worked for, she was one of the heads of our, our FCPA practice group. And occasionally a few of us would get sucked into to an AKS case or two. And, and she would always say, you know, the AKS is just the FCPA, the US version of the FCPA. So if you know foreign anti-bribery stuff, UK Bribery Act, stuff like that, then, then you know the AKS, which is nothing could be further from the truth as you know um it is so regulated and so nuanced just all the safe harbors that are attached to it and those are constantly changing given the ever evolving healthcare industry and and uh and and changes to billing practices and things like that and so yeah staying on top of the enforcement trends and and things of that nature And, and you really realize too when you start to Rely on folks like yourself and and other outside counsel that that you do need someone who is their sole practice is is focused on on AKS uh, FCA because a lot of times if it's just a generalist, they won't be up to speed and and really understand the nuances of,
1: of of the law and the latest enforcement trends. Mm-hmm. So in your current position, what are your responsibilities? What what all do you oversee? So I oversee all, you know, obviously our,
0: our corporate compliance program. It's a global team. Right now we're at uh, 32 uh, heads globally. We organize the department. We model it after how our, our business is structured um, based on on regional heads. Like I was talking about APAC. Um, we have a regional compliance officer uh, who manages our team there. I think we've got 10 Folks in that region, and then our Latam headquarters and RCO there, and then same thing for Mia and, and North America. So, kind of managing that that team and driving the program, and then specifically, we own. You know, the the main risk is is obviously anti bribery, anti corruption, AKS, FCA would fall under that. We do a little bit of antitrust, but but antitrust just isn't a huge risk for for the industry for whatever reason. That might change at some point. I think it's possible that it could as things consolidate a little bit more. And there is some risk there because as you know, reps kind of bounce back and forth between competitors and so so you know, occasionally there's pricing information that might get shared, but
1: yeah, interestingly, I mean that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought much about that, but in fact, it's it just if anything, it is such a hyper competitive industry that it almost that it's much easier to see the AKS and FCA problem than it is to see the antitrust problem, which is obviously sort of a which is about the lack of competition. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, in addition to that, uh, privacy
0: falls under my remit, and that that's been been a growing a growing risk for us as it is for for most folks within the industry. It seems like for a long time, device companies really tried to eschew patient data and do everything they could from from having too much of that, just because of all of the you know HIPAA and all the other risks that that come with with having a fair amount of patient data but as as the industrys evolved we really see a lot of advantages where device companies can when they have access to patient data can really customize their products and and create a, a better experience for the patient and so us along with many others are, are I think now kind of changing tack and realizing that that it might be might make sense to embrace that and and looking to develop different different products, we do have access to a lot more personal and and patient data. So because of that, you know, the risk is is increasing significantly, and we've seen more and more countries are adopting GDPR-like regulations, uh, including here in the U.S. You've probably seen North Carolina, California... Colorado. And, and at some point, we'll have a federal a federal privacy law. So.
1: so switching gears, I think, Alex, you were going to ask some questions about the False Claims Act and compliance, right?
2: Yeah. So Pete, just to get your perspective on some of the False Claims Act issues that you see, and in particular, can you just talk about why the False Claims Act is relevant to you know the healthcare industry and to companies that are operating in, the, in this industry? Why is it such an area of concern and, and, and risk? In particular,
0: well, I think just based on how the industry is structured, there's a lot of a lot of our products are reimbursed by federal healthcare programs, and whenever that happens, then there's always the the chance that that the government could be could be defrauded through false claims on the manufacturer side as opposed to the provider side the biggest hook for the fca for us is really through the anti-kickback statute you know where the government would take the position that if you're providing an improper benefit to physician in violation of the aks that that's necessarily results in a false claim and a violation of the fca so uh, those two laws from our perspective are really really go hand in hand
2: yeah, and just to pick up on that too, the False Claims Act as you've indicated, you know, liability is triggered based on the submission of a false claim, presenting a false claim, but also causing the submission of a false claim. So, false or fraudulent claims, allegations can be brought against essentially third parties, not the, you know, healthcare provider in particular that's submitting a claim for reimbursement, potentially third parties. And that's where you see a lot of activity, enforcement activity against you know, manufacturers and others in the distribution chain. So I can imagine that's an area that, you know, makes this particularly important to uh, device manufacturers. Right. And, and you know, it's one of those things that just,
0: it, it gets a lot of attention politically because so many folks are are really focused on the rising cost of healthcare in the country and what a significant amount of our budget is spent on that. And it's a number that continues to grow. And so obviously FCA applies to a variety of different industries and that's, that's always a challenge, but you know, people really feel it (laughs) when they're paying for, for medical care. I think it, it hits home in a, a way that maybe a defense contractor or something like that wouldn't, wouldn't have that same resonance with, with your average, average Joe. So yeah, I think people see that and they, they understand that there's a lot of, a lot of fraud in the system, a lot of fat. And it's in everyone's interest to ensure that that uh, we minimize those those fraudulent activities as much as possible to try to keep the keep the cost of healthcare down.
1: So, really bearing down on that, what do you do to what do you do to limit your exposure to FCA liability when really the government can be pretty expansive in in ginning up theories? Yeah, that's <laughs> you know I, I think that's one thing. Just in the
0: within the compliance space. And you guys know my background, similar to yours. I'm a I'm a criminal defense lawyer, um, and so, yeah, I I view a lot of what the government has done as, in some respects, as an overreach. And, and I do think we have to think about that sort of the the downside to to the government overregulating in that space and saying certain conduct that that might be inherently corruptive from our view isn't, and that that that. The cost of trying to comply with, with their perspective on, on the AKS or the FCA is, is significant and, and there are opportunity costs to that. That means we're not spending as much money developing new products, advancing medical science, improving the lives of patients if we're spending too much time trimming back our business operations and, and trying to ensure that we're not on the right side or the wrong side of the law.
1: Yeah, just to stake out a pretty extreme position, if only for the sake of conversation. Objectively, I think we all have to agree the idea of a false claims act is pretty important. But come on, it's it's become almost a shakedown. The, they rarely get litigated, and and that's because the government understands that companies are happy—not happy, but it makes it makes fiscal sense for a company to pay the government off in a settlement, regardless of the aggressive theory. I, I mean, I, I'm sure we've all seen this. I've seen it. The, gov- the government will come at you with a fairly aggressive theory of FCA liability. Be great to litigate it, but why would you litigate it? Why would you let the government ever proceed with a lawsuit if you can get a settlement that gets rid of the problem fast and then gets rid of the financial sting quick, more quickly?
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And the, the risks are so high because, you know, the, the bully club that they have is, is exclusion too and, and that's just that can be a death knell for any medical device manufacturer if if your products aren't reimbursed by federal programs and so I think that's that's really what brings a lot of manufacturers to the table too even if they think the the government's theory is is very weak and and they'd like to litigate you know there's always for big corporations they don't like uncertainty and shareholders and whatever so there's always that that pressure to try to settle but when you when you factor in the risk of exclusion too, I think that is just such a significant danger that folks come to the table and that, that leads to, at the end of the day, some bad law. And I think I think from our perspective, we can probably all agree to that, 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 yeah, there's been overreaching and there's cost to that, so.
1: Yeah, and part of the frustration is also, also is that it's not just about the law, it's about the sub-regulatory guidance and the just all the different players. You've got DOJ, you've got state AGs, you've got CMS. You've got HHS, OIG, you've got the, the Macs, right? and throwing out their LCDs. and there's this just alphabet soup of participants that are able to play off of each other to, to push a case forward. And in the end it, I mean, in my experience, it, it nearly inevit, it inevitably drives a settlement or occasionally sadly, a bankruptcy. And every once in a while you get a litigation to help suss out the issues. Yeah, I think that's right. And one thing that that I think our industry, you know, and this goes back to
0: I think it was Chuck Grassley that really pushed it—the legislation of, of sunshine and just transparency, and and that's a great way to kind of combat that that fraud um, in a lot of respects is just just bringing daylight to to the transactions and interactions between providers or manufacturers and and physicians, so that that people know if money's changing hands and they can they can make those determinations I, I to me that seems like a better vehicle to be able to do it than as you point out there's so many regulatory bodies with their own parochial interests that that can be empowered to um, to bring these claims
1: so one one thing we haven't talked about that's implicit in all of this are are the healthcare providers the doctors and so you've you know just to really atomize it and go down to the you know the the, the nitty-gritty, the little the individual element of it. How do you – what do you have to do in dealing with physicians to balance these F- these FCA and, and AKS risks against just wanting to do business with these individuals? Yeah, it
0: is so hard. <laughs> I, and that's one thing I – you know, we do see the government really going after – the providers or the manufacturers and not as much the physicians, unless it's a really egregious case, you know, like we saw with the the opioids or something like that. They typically don't, which that creates some, you know, because obviously physicians are going to be driven by remuneration and seeing opportunities to, to work with companies. But I, I mean, just specifically one, one aspect that I think that we can see the consequences of that are, are in developing new products, uh, where a company like Arthrex, we're extremely innovative. Um, that's our better bread and butter. And we've really advanced medical science, uh, you know, when it comes to sports injuries. So many of our star athletes, including us, you know, who, who um, are active too and, and need those products. The technology that has advanced over the last, you know, 30 or 20 years has, has been incredible. It's blessed the lives of a lot of people. That has come through a partnership between manufacturers and physicians who are practicing and they understand the pathologies and they understand the tools that they need to really advance that. But that can lead to um, a lot of money changing hands. And so the government looks at that and they're always skeptical anytime, you know, certain prosecutors or regulators anytime that there's money that comes from a manufacturer to a doctor, they, you know, their presumption is that it's it's corruptive and so if, if they overregulate that what that means is that 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 partnership won't take place or at least not to the level if, if physicians are spooked that that their name is going to be associated with an enforcement action and uh, manufacturers are worried the government's going to look at something that that they think is is benign but that the government
1: disagrees with that that they're going to get in trouble so um, yeah that's one of the costs of it so alex i, I know you want to talk to you about guidance documents
2: well, before we go there, I just want to ask Pete about sort of the compliance function a little bit, too, and in, in the sense that, you know, one of the aspects of the False Claims Act that makes it so powerful, too, is the role of the whistleblower, like you've touched on, and the fact that these allegations can emerge, you know, initially with a whistleblower complaint that's filed under seal and the defendant is even aware of it. And I guess from that standpoint, from what what can companies do in terms of a compliance function to just r- help reduce the risks and are there particular things that are m- more effective for the false claims act than than they would be maybe for a different type of risk
0: i mean that's probably the bane of every <laughs> compliance officers you know I mean, we're all dealing with it is is trying to get whether that's employees former employees you know other partners instead of filing a key, t- key tam action and going outside instead Keeping that in house, and so you know everybody, to the extent just like us, we have a hotline that it's administered by a third party. We we do think that I I see this a lot that people are skeptical that it's really anonymous, but as you guys know, it really is. And and these companies that provide that service, it's essential that they protect the anonymity of of potential whistleblowers. But yeah, but we really try to drive as many folks to our hotline as possible. To us, that's a sign of a healthy program. Obviously, if we don't have enough, that that gives us concern. And so so we're constantly measuring that and trying to benchmark it against numbers within other similar situated companies. Because if if you're not if folks don't trust the compliance function and the process, then it makes sense that they would go to the outside and and file a key TAM. And that just in some ways it's great business for um, for certain folks but but i think at the end of the day it's a significant cost uh, to companies and um, that have to have to deal with that litigation that we'd much rather and, it, and not to say once you're big enough it's high risk you're, you're gonna have problems uh everybody does but i think being able to identify those and and correct them internally that's what compliance programs are here for um, that's what the government wants at the end of the day i think that's why you know the doj guidance and really trying to push compliance as much as possible because that leads to a healthy organization.
1: Along those lines, so what what's the what's the workflow? What happens when when a tip hits your hotline? How, how does that how does that function? How does it explode or how does it die?
0: Yeah, so we, we have compliance department manages the hotline and it, it can be submitted via the internet, sent via email or a phone call that the third party takes the information uh, that comes into, to to the compliance department. We have, you know, sort of an investigative group. They then look at the initial complaint. They sit down with, with a representative from legal and a representative from HR at that point. We get a lot of HR, especially in kind of these COVID times. Oh, absolutely. Uh, A lot of HR complaints that come through that. So then they make a determination like, okay, this is squarely HR. Or this is something that is squarely compliance. Sometimes a joint investigation, you know, considerations about whether or not it should be privileged are taken at that point. And then the team goes and they investigate. Once they're done with the investigation, and you know, that can range, it can be really quick sometimes that uh, that they resolve that. And as you guys know, sometimes those investigations can get can get very large and outside counsel can get involved. But then they they take that report back into, the sort of head committee that's comprised of myself, our general counsel, and our SVP for HR who oversee and make sure that the investigation was done appropriately, that followed all of our protocols. We take great pains to protect the anonymity of a whistleblower, even if they don't give us our names, uh, their, their names of oftentimes just by asking certain questions that can be identified. So we, we do everything we can to ensure that that doesn't happen. Um we have a robust anti-retaliation pro- policy that we really promote. But yeah, and then it gets closed out and and then you know we sort of think about root cause and if if we need to change controls or or procedures because of what we identified.
1: You know, it is interesting sometimes talking about um, about whistleblowers and complainants convincing them that we that the company really doesn't want to know who they are because it's actually bad not only does it discourage compliance in some ways or discourage people from coming forward but it also can be bad for the company legally and I, i've had situations where as outside counsel i know who the whistleblowers are i know where the key i know where the key tam probably is coming from i don't want to tell the company And we've i've agreed with the company to try to protect them from the information
2: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah absolutely. So definitely an issue just to add something about compliance that you touched on pete which is that it's important to the government, and that is that is true. I mean, part of it is what you're describing is a great, you know, approach to reducing a problem on the front end, re- reducing the circumstances that could give rise to an allegation of fraud. But then on the back end, under the compliance, you know, regime that DOJ is following, and this is now in in the civil side for the False Claims Act, in the guidance that was issued, I think, in May of 2019, that says they'll actually think about and consider when settling an, F- an FCA matter the existence of a robust compliance program. So that that's something that a, a company can that has a strong compliance program and is settling an FCA case can actually point to as a reason for, you know, reduce reducing what would otherwise be, you know, significant treble damages.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, another kind of bane for compliance officers is trying to justify um, the expense and show sort of the ROI because compliance programs are expensive. And, and if you're a business leader trying to balance how much you're going to spend on hiring another compliance person and, and adding additional controls and bureaucracy as opposed to hiring a sales guy or product developer, um, those are tough decisions. But I think that's where the more the government is is open and specific about how they're evaluating these different cases and being able to show, look, here's a declination. We didn't take action here because of the company had invested X, Y, or Z. And we think in this instance, it's a victim as much as we are of a rogue employee of a bad apple who both defrauded the government and and exposed the company to risk that, that the company did everything it could to prevent that. So it's very helpful. Those kind of, the more specific the government is, the more we can... Compliance officers can point and justify to their business leaders, you know, the specific declinations and and the factors that the government considers. It makes it that much easier to help them understand why why a compliance program is important.
2: So, uh, turning to the guidance issue, I mean, Barack touched a, a little bit earlier on on the n- large number of different types of you know sub regulatory guidance documents that come out rele- relevant to healthcare and. We've seen from the legal side some interesting developments in the last few years with DOJ's uh, reliance or lack of reliance on sub-regulatory guidance. There was a memo issued under the previous administration called the Brand Memo that basically instructed DOJ line attorneys not to rely on guidance as the basis of establishing a violation under the False Claims Act. And now, uh, very recently, the Attorney General has rescinded that memo and issued some revised guidance to line attorneys about this question of what, what is the source of law that a line attorney or trial attorney can rely on to, uh, to point to an alleged violation of the False Claims Act? Can you just speak to, from a compliance standpoint, why is this issue relevant? Why does this matter, you know, in terms of guidance versus something that's in a regulation why is that issue, you know, relevant?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I actually see both sides. You know, maybe politically, I'm a little bit more aligned with with Rachel Brand's perspective, and and you know, I, I think if if we're going to make laws, it should be made <laughs> by by legislatures, and having folks kind of create more and more of these regulatory regimes and these guidance documents kind of empowers that fourth branch and that can be problematic. But from a compliance perspective, it's actually really helpful because the more the more communication, the more instruction we have from the government, the better able we are to assess the risks and where we want to allocate our resources to try to design the program in a way that's, that's going to mitigate that as much as possible. That being said, one issue we have too, and, and I think I mentioned this when we were we were chatting earlier, there's a recent case for us out of the Fourth Circuit with regard to the Department of Justice's view on a particular safe harbor under the anti-kickback statute uh, that led to an FCA violation. It's, it's, the case is U.S. v. Mallory. And in that OIG, the Office of Inspector General under HHS had promulgated very specific guidance about, about that particular safe harbor. DOJ totally ignored all that guidance and and brought the case and the court endorsed the department's perspective that was totally at odds with with OIG and so for a company like us that we've invested substantial resources in in our North American business model based on that guidance from from one particular agency and thinking we're we're I mean you're never totally safe but but that we've we've mitigated the risk because we've done x y or z in, in accordance with what oig has told us and then D- doj comes along and says like yeah we view it totally differently and, and we're going to start bringing cases based on a total different theory then that's that's when it's <laughs> rather not have the guidance um at that point and um just in interpret the
1: law on our own and we're seeing that if we're seeing doj react to that decision in cases we're facing now so it's 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 not just theoretical There. are there may, it's 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 a sword and shield problem d o j is telling us well we can't really talk about we can't really base what we're doing on the guidance but you know here's our legal theory and deal with it like way but we we actually care about the guidance because we assume that's that's what helps us follow the law and we thought we were following the guidance it's yep. it's an issue yeah. yeah absolutely i mean I guess what we're seeing and i i take your point pete about how how the, the brand memo really made sense because you, in a sense, because you don't want this unofficial fourth branch of government. So there, there needs to be some balance. Some, there needs to be some way of acknowledging the role that subregulatory guidance plays in the process while at the same time not overempowering the ability to interpret it and use it as, as, a, as something that carries the force of law so Pete what's the biggest thing that worries you these days as a compliance officer of a major medical device company uh, I mean my challenges are
0: kind of unique because we're privately held Barack as you know it's it's kind of I think you noted the, the size and without having some of the same so compliance programs and and I think the way the government has designed it whether they're corporate integrity agreements or guidance you know from DOj or Wherever it comes from, they really have public companies in mind, and they talk about boards of directors and audit committees and having compliance being able to report into that. And for private companies, especially ones like we're structured, that just doesn't fit. And and so that's that's one thing that's just been been kind of a challenge is how to take that guidance or these other enforcement documents and and customize it for us just cause you know, I feel like we, we are really unique. And so that's in some ways it's fun. I, that's what keeps the job interesting. And, and I think, you know, requires some creativity, but it, it also can be really frustrating as well. And then just generally, I think, you know, same thing for most compliance officers is, is trying to trying to help the organization understand the risks, uh, and, and to, to get why we're doing what we're doing. Um, and so,
1: well, I guess that's a, that's a struggle that legal has everywhere to varying degrees, which is to explain itself as not just a, 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 um, revenue suck, but something that actually in the long run, um, magnifies revenue by keeping the company out of trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's impossible to prove that, right? Because you can't <laughs> prove the
0: negative that yeah. it didn't right. happen. And right. Or the enforcement action that we did face. We would have paid so much more if we didn't have any program or, you know, we would have been fighting back X number of additional key TAM suits. It's just, it's, it's impossible to do that. I think it's something, and I know different, I think conversant, different companies have really tried to delve into this like ROI and compliance, but I think it's, it's tough to do that just because at the end of the day, you are, you're trying to, you're trying to show that things didn't happen that could have and. It's just, yeah, it doesn't really work.
1: Pete, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, it was fun. And that concludes this podcast of White Collar Briefly.
0: This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly of Perkins Coie Minipod, copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.